back of the Bible, the last uh, book in the New Testament. I want to read to you this morning from Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read from verses 9 through to 20. The Apostle John, writing underneath, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you that uh, although this was written many, many years ago, Lord, it is written to your people and it has very much uh, a lot to say to us today. Lord, it is the living word. It is the word that brings life true life through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we meditate on this word this morning, as we explore what it has to say, Lord, we pray that uh, it will indeed result in life in, in, in us, recognising, Lord, that, uh, that life comes as we uh, cling firmly to Jesus. May he be exalted this morning in, uh, in our lives and in this time together, and we ask it in his name. Amen. 
You know, in the, uh, that celebrated uh, children's book by C.S. Lewis, The uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you might be familiar with it, it talks about the adventures of uh, four children in this wonderful uh, land called Narnia. But Narnia is, uh, is, is in trouble because it's a land that is under the, uh, the rule and reign of this evil witch and, it's, uh, and, 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 and she's made the whole land uh, winter and it's, uh, it's freezing cold and, and everything is dead or it's dying and, and the people are just living in, in, in poverty and, uh, and they're just under this incredible oppression from this evil. And they're just the, uh, the, 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 the creatures and the people of Narnia are just, they're waiting, they're hoping, they're looking forward to the arrival of, uh, of Aslan, the lion, the, uh, the one who is meant to come and to, uh, to break the power of evil and to bring life and, and flourishing back to the land of Narnia and to bring hope to the people. Of course, the, uh, this story very much is, is an allegory of, the, of God's plan of redemption for our world. And, and, and Aslan is meant to represent Jesus Christ. And uh, the children, while they're in Narnia, they come to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And you might recall the scene. And it uh, plays out a bit like this as, as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver try to explain Aslan to the children. And uh, Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. You know, having just celebrated Christmas, the image of Jesus in many people's minds is, of course, the baby Jesus in the manger. You know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the words of the carol says, holy infant so tender and mild. If you do a Google search for images of Jesus, you'll often get a picture <clears throat> excuse me, of a, of a white man with, with long hair that will do the shampoo commercials of one, you know, wonders, that kind of person. You know, with this, uh, with this uh, you know, beard, this long hair and, and, and this halo around him. Of course, these images paint Jesus as a rather gentle and meek person, sometimes even cuddling a lamb. In a way, these paint a very comforting picture of Jesus, someone who kind of evokes that sense of, of peace and, and warmth, someone who we would find it really easy to kind of draw near to. He's certainly not fearsome in any way, shape or form. This is the kind of a very safe Jesus that many people really look for today and really hope for and really sort of kind of, kind of just want to gravitate towards. But that kind of picture of Jesus sort of kind of paints Jesus more like a kitten rather than a lion, wouldn't you say? Who loves a fluffy kitten, kids? Hey? Yeah, some of you do? No? Come on, kids, who likes a fluffy kitten? 
No, we're not, not going to. Okay, they've all switched off. They're in their colouring books. All right. <clears throat> for, many, no, for many, though, as I said, this is the kind of Jesus they want. They want this domesticated kind of Jesus. But let me ask you this, though. If you were looking for someone to really inspire you, someone with the ability to, to actually protect you, in the face of, 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 of overwhelming kind of, uh, you know, uh, trials and difficulties and things like that, someone to cause your enemies to fear, someone with the power to confront sin and evil and to defeat it and even defeat death, then is it a, is it a kitten you want or is it a lion? What kind of Jesus is the one that you follow? Now, here in this passage in Revelation, we find a picture of Jesus, one that we don't often consider very much. Yet it is one that we really need to do well to remember. For this picture of Jesus that's given to John to communicate to the church is one that shows Jesus as he now is, as he is right now at this very moment. There, seated at the right hand of God. It's one that should inspire us. It's one that should also comfort us, but it's, and it's one that should encourage us. But it's also one that should cause us to respond like John does in this passage where he falls down in absolute reverent fear and awe of Jesus. Look at verse 17. John says, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus in all his majesty and all his glory, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. Is that the kind of response we have to Jesus as we come to our worship here on a Sunday, as we sing these songs? Who is it we are singing these songs to? Who is it that we gather together around here in this place on a Sunday as the family of God? We gather around not some kind of nice little, you know, domesticated picture of Jesus, but we, we gather around the throne of the exalted Christ. As John writes this book, as he writes this book of Revelation, it's around the end of the first century, around about 95 AD. And at the time, the Christian church is under incredible persecution. They were feeling discouraged. They were feeling disillusioned. They were in desperate need of hope and encouragement in their lives. John himself, we read in this passage, is in exile on the island of Patmos because of his ministry of preaching the word of God and of testifying to the truth of Jesus. John, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of his faith, John is exiled to this island. He's cast out by the authorities. It's most likely at this stage too that John is probably the last of the apostles, the last surviving apostle, as many have already, the rest have already lost their lives, many as martyrs of the faith. 
And it's while John is here in exile that he is worshipping God on the Lord's Day, a Sunday when he's given this incredible Holy Spirit-inspired vision of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists those churches. He's commanded to write down what he sees. Now, the, uh, the book of Revelation, as we uh, go through the letters over the next several weeks, we're going to find that there are some interesting kind of images in the book of Revelation. And as you read through the whole book, you're going to find all these kind of weird and wonderful type images in that. Jesus is telling John to write down what he sees, not just what he hears, but what he sees. And for a, a man living in the first century, and Jesus is going to give him this, this picture of the, of the future. And John is kind of just going to try to get his head wrapped around this kind of stuff and write down what he sees. So there are going to be some interesting and, and quite amazing kind of images as we read through that. Write down what you see and distribute it to the seven churches Jesus says, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches are in, were in what we call modern-day Turkey, or in, in that day, Asia Minor. And they were significant centres in their day. And they were the main points from which natural communications would be distributed to the various parts of the Eastern Roman Empire. So what we can might, might sort of see these churches as is kind of like distribution hubs, if you like. That from there it sort of radiated out and communication channels went out from these places. The, uh, the, the way that they're sort of set out would be how a messenger would, would sort of travel around those churches in a kind of a circular motion, starting at Ephesus and working their way around those towns. In writing to these particular, uh, these particular churches, what uh, um, we're seeing is that you know, this letter was going to be taken and, and would be read amongst all the Christians Reminding them about this with Jesus' words to his churches, not just the Apostle John. And they could, be, they could be circulated widely and they would be addressing matters that were relevant to the churches in that day. But because they're just relevant to churches in that day, doesn't mean it's relevant to us in our day. Because as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. And what was relevant in the churches in those days are very much relevant to us today. Those churches were, chasing, were facing the same kind of challenges, the same kind of issues, and that sort of thing that we face in our own contexts. John tells us that as he's worshipping on the Lord Day, he first hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. A loud voice like a trumpet. The sound of a trumpet's pretty unmistakable, isn't it? Who was, here, who was here for carols? We had the trumpet in carols. You can't miss the trumpet, can you? In fact, we had to tell Mal to sort of kind of tone it down a bit, but otherwise you would have drowned everything else out. The sound of a trumpet is unmistakable. It pierces through all kinds of noise. And faced with all of the kind of noise that's going on in our lives, we need to hear that piercing sound of the trumpet of God day by day. We really need to hear it. Trumpets are often played to get people's attention to announce something incredibly important, significant or special. 
If you've watched any of the royal weddings on television or anything like that, you'll know that before they come in, there's this loud blast of trumpet fanfare. You know, as royalty comes in, as the the Queen opens Parliament and all that sort of stuff, they see all of these, these trumpet fanfares announcing something significant. And that's what's being announced here. And we need to recognize that we need to take notice of this because it is something profoundly important and significant that is being announced, not just to John, but as we read these words to us as well. For what follows should be something that John needs to pay very careful attention to, but it's a message that we ourselves need to pay very careful attention to because it comes with the authority of Christ. Of course, having heard the voice, John turns to see where it is coming from, and on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands. And if you go down to verse 20, you'll see that those seven golden lampstands actually represent those seven churches that we've been talking about. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like a son of man. Where have we heard that term before? If you go through the Gospels, you'll hear Jesus actually referring to himself with that very title very often through the Gospels, calling himself the Son of Man. But you know, one of the things that's, that you'll find really common in Revelation is its references to Old Testament imagery. In fact, there are over 500 Old Testament references in just 490 verses in the whole book of Revelation. 500. And so it's pretty significant that, uh, that, that, that uh, you know, God is wanting us to sort of see his overall plan being worked out right from the beginning of the word, of, of, right from the beginning of the Bible, right through to the end of the Bible. This uh, particular um, title, Son of Man, is one of these Old Testament images. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it reads this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is speaking about Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is given this amazing you know, picture of, 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 of Jesus at the end of time appearing before God and being presented all of creation to rule over. And of course, you've only got to turn to the New Testament passages like you know, Colossians chapter 1 to sort of see the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ who's reigning over all. Through every, everything was made through him and by him. And straight away, John here is meant to see that the one that he is gazing upon is none other than the risen, exalted Lord Jesus who reigns over all, the one who will defeat all earthly powers and kingdoms. It's an incredible vision, a marvellous vision. And I encourage you to, you know, when, we, when you go home this week to, to, to uh, go back into this passage and, and truly meditate upon this passage and, 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 and get a, a fresh picture of who Jesus really is, that risen, exalted Christ. Yet it was more than just meant to be a vision. It was more than just to be a heavenly vision for John to behold. It was meant 
to be something to communicate to John and to all his readers a specific truth about Jesus, that he is the powerful and almighty God, the glorious Lord who is reigning on high and to whom all kingdoms and people of this earth must bow. Must have been an incredible comfort to John and to the church in his day when they read this letter to be reminded that Jesus is the one who will sit in judgment on the evil and wicked rulers and on their dominions and will ultimately overthrow and destroy them. That it will be Jesus who will vindicate his saints and bring them into his everlasting kingdom. Jesus is reminding John and the church, he's reminding us today that he knows and understands their lives. He knows and understands the trials and the tribulations, the hardships, the oppressions, and that, and, and that they must not lose heart in the midst of that because he is the one who is ultimately in control and is going to set things right. As Isaac said, the name's already on the trophy. It's a good reminder to us today when we see all that is going on around us. that prevalence of evil that we see around us, the wickedness, the, broken, or the, breaking, the breaking down of the moral fabric of society, the social injustice that happens in our world, the growing opposition to the, to the Christian faith, all of these things and all of the evils and, 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 and terrible things that we see going on in our world today, it's a reminder that in the midst of all of this, Jesus is still on his throne, he's still in control. John begins this section by telling his readers that he is a partner with them in the tribulation, in the suffering and affliction that the believers in his day were going through. But not only was he a partner with them in the tribulation, but he's also a partner with them in the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus Christ. You know, it's significant that John places these three specific things together, tribulation, kingdom, endurance. Now, in saying that he's a partner, John is talking about, again, this, this shared fellowship that we have as believers in Jesus Christ because we're all united together in him. We're all collectively, you know, we need to remember that we are united, that we together, we, we need to be together. That's going to be one of our key themes throughout 2020, the faithful, together and bold. That God has brought about, he's purchased a family. He's purchased his own children. And you and I, if we put our faith in Christ, are a part of that. And therefore, we are connected together in Christ. There's no getting away from that. You know, we, we treasure our families, our blood relatives and that sort of thing. But in fact, our re relationship to one another in Christ is even more significant and even more important than our own blood relations. Because our own blood relations are only going to last for this amount of time here on earth, but we'll be with Jesus and one another forever in eternity. We need to remember that we are together in fellowship in Christ. And not only together here, but with all believers right across our world. And we're partners together in suffering and persecution. We're, we're partners together in everything that is common to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we're to remember in the midst of that that we are not alone. 
And there's a comfort that comes from that. Many people here in this church, you know, over the years have, I've know have, have drawn great sense of comfort and encouragement and, and joy from the, the fellowship that they've been able to enjoy from God's people here. And when things get really, really tough in our lives, it's really amazing to know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are there with us and who are experiencing that same sort of stuff with us. For us here living in this country, you know, we've got so many resources and stuff available to us and so much, you know, so much material stuff available to us that we, we, we tend to sort of not have the same kind of picture of this fellowship that maybe as believers in other parts of our world, particularly those who have absolutely nothing and are going through incredible persecution for their faith right now. And these believers themselves draw incredible uh, encouragement from knowing that there are brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are praying with them, who are actually sending resources to them in order to, to help them in their situations. That partnership is so important because we, we draw strength from that partnership in the gospel, that partnership through faith in Christ. You might remember the, this, the, uh, the account of Elijah who was fleeing from Jezebel. You know, after the, uh, the uh, incident there on Mount Carmel where Elijah had gone up against the uh, prophets of Baal and had defeated them. And then as he uh, you know, leaves that place, the Queen, Queen Jezebel says that, you know, if it's, uh, you know, if it's got anything to do with her, then Elijah's going to be dead by the end of that day. And Elijah flees from Jezebel in, in fear. And, you know, we find Elijah come to this place and he's, he's there alone and he's having this conversation with God and he tells God that he's all alone, that he's the last one. There's no other, there's no other believers, you know, that he's, that he's aware of. And God tells him that there are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. God reminds him, Elijah, you're not on your own. Not only do you have me with you, but there are, there are many brothers and sisters in the faith with you in the midst of that. So don't lose heart. Partners in tribulation. And of course, the proper response to this, this suffering, this affliction is patient, endurance and perseverance, John says. Partners in tribulation and the endurance that are in Jesus. You know, in the midst of this hardships, in the middle of, uh, you know, in the midst of finding, you know, the Christian faith, a challenging journey. And as Isaac said here this morning with the team, you know, it's going to be, they're going to be, a, it's going to be some really, really hard games to play, guys. We're up against giants. We're up against really imposing kind of opposition and all kinds of challenges. And we ourselves know that it's not just the stuff that, that, that from, that's from without. You know, all of the, the, the outside pressures that, that, that come to bear on us as believers today. But it's those internal wrestling with sin in our lives, isn't it? That constant struggle with sin and, try, and, and trying to have that, 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 that victory over sin in our lives. And, you know, we can be very much like the Apostle Paul who says, you know, the things that I want to do, they're the things I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find they're the things that I end up doing. Those kind of wrestlings that we have in our lives day by day, it's those things as well. And they can be disheartening and discouraging. But the proper response to the suffering, whether it be external or internal, is patient, endurance and perseverance as we look to Christ, as we lean on him. A faithful and steadfast obedience to, to, to God despite 
what's going on around us and with inside us. It means never giving up or giving in, John is saying here. Because Jesus himself endured. Jesus himself endured incredible suffering, incredible hardship. Jesus himself you know, went, um, you know, went, went through not just the, chat, the, uh, the trials of the crucifixion and, and then the floggings and all that stuff before it, but, but the shame that was brought upon him because of our sin. Jesus had to endure that. Jesus had to endure that separation from God there on the cross, that, that, that unity that Jesus had with the Father there on the cross. Jesus had to, had to endure that. He had to endure all of the challenges through life as well. He is our model. And Jesus faithfully persevered and endured, and we are to follow him in his example with his strength. The kingdom aspect here points to the truth that we are indeed all partakers in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we find ourselves in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that difficulty, we need to be reminded that we are indeed partakers of the kingdom of God already. We are already citizens of heaven. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God or Philippians 3:20 where it says but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ folks in the midst of the hardships and the trials and the the uh, the, diff, the, the, the challenges of life we are to be constantly reminded be, being reminded of this fact that we are indeed citizens of the kingdom that we are already but we already belong to Jesus and we are already on the winning team. It's interesting here that John speaks of Jesus as being dressed in a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. It brings to mind the Old Testament priestly garments. And here's another allusion to this Old Testament stuff from Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16, where it says, you know, Jesus, of course, is our high priest as we're reminded in Hebrews 4.14, meaning that he is the only one who is able to reconcile us to God. But not only does he reconcile us to God, but he also intercedes before God on our behalf. And so because of that, we can have the utmost confidence that our salvation is perfectly secure in Jesus and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor anything can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what we face, our hope is always in him. Of course, in mentioning the kingdom too, John is reminding his, re -readers, his readers that God's kingdom has already arrived God's kingdom has already arrived in this world in, in part and is visible in the rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of his people. And yes, like Nani was living under the, the curse, we currently live in a world that is under the reign of Satan and sin, but this is just for a short time because one day Jesus is going to return in all his glory and all his power and finally defeat these powers of this evil world and set up his eternal kingdom forever and ever. That's our hope. That's our hope. 
No matter how hard this world gets, no matter how hard this life gets, no matter what the challenges come, no matter what trials come, no matter what hardships, no matter what loss, no matter what sadness, nor grief, nor pain that we experience in this world can ever compare with the glories that are ours in Jesus Christ and our hope that is in him. We must never lose sight of the end game. We had to wait patiently and trust in Jesus day by day. Folks, we are to be the church, the faithful and persevering church of Jesus Christ. And when faced with trial and tribulation, when faced with opposition and persecution, the danger is always going to be that we will be tempted to compromise our faith, to blend in with the crowd to lose sight of our hope, to lose sight of our first love being Jesus and maybe even to abandon our trust in him. But the encouragement from this passage here is that we continue to faithfully endure. Notice that John says here that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. This not only speaks to the fact that Jesus is with his church in the midst of the suffering and the persecution and the opposition it faces from the world, but that he is also aware of what is going on in the churches, in his church as well. It speaks to the fact that he knows his church, he knows his people. And not only is he going to hold the world to account, but he's also going to hold us as the church to account. The lampstands point to the role that the church has in the world to be a light for Jesus. Those lampstands, the, 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 seven, uh, the seven-pronged menorah, the, uh, the lampstand that, that, that stood in the, in the temple, it speaks of the light of the word of God. And we as, the, as Christians today are meant to be Christ's light in the world. The church is meant to be a light for Jesus, pointing to his truth and his holiness. And in that, Jesus calls his church to be pure and holy in the midst of such an evil world. And as such, Jesus is going to hold us to account and will discipline us when we fail to carry out that purpose to which he has called us. It's interesting, the priests in the temple would trim the wicks of the lampstand and fill the, 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 uh, the, 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 the uh, lampstand with oil. And Jesus, as the high priest, provides the oil of his spirit to energize the church but he also seeks to keep its witness, the church's witness strong by dealing with that which hinders and dims the light of the church. We must never lose sight of that as well, folks. We cannot, just, we cannot treat Jesus as this little kind of kitten whom we can just have and stroke and feel good about ourselves with. The aspects of the image of Jesus that John goes on to speak of point to Jesus' own purity and holiness and his authority to judge. We're skipping through this passage, I know, and honestly, we could do probably about half a dozen messages on, you know, just from this one passage alone. But let's just quickly look at uh, just a few of them. I'm just going to skip over them fairly quickly. The, the white hair of, of, of Jesus, 
is this reference, another reference to Daniel, referring to Jesus as God, the all-knowing and the all-wise God, the all-glorious God. His flaming eyes speak about the fact that, that Jesus searchingly, you know, his gaze pierces out into the hearts and the souls of men, revealing who we really are. His feet, like burnished bronze, are refined in the furnace, speak of, of his purity, having himself gone through the testing, the testing of, the, of, 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 of the living the perfect life, of going through the crucifixion, of rising from the dead. Jesus himself has gone through the furnace for us, has been tested and has come out perfect. His voice, like the roar of many waters, speaking of his powerful authority. The fact that he holds the seven stars in his hand speaks to the fact that Jesus is sovereignly exercising his leadership through the church and through godly leaders in the midst of the church. The two-edged sword that comes from his mouth speaks about God's Jesus' truth and his judgment. He speaks truth and he speaks, the, he speaks judgment. He brings judgment on all things. And his face that shines like the sun, speaks of his glory, which he wants to display through his church, through his people. See, all of these things point to Jesus' sovereignty in the world and most importantly, his sovereignty in the church. And folks, this picture of Jesus, this is what Jesus is truly like today. You know, when it comes to knowing and loving Jesus, it's nice to have that image of him as that comforter, the one to whom we can draw near to without fear. And that's true. Jesus is like that. But we need to also remember that Jesus is the exalted, glorified, authoritative and holy God who calls us to be holy and to submit all of ourselves to his rule and reign in our lives. But we will, not, we will not do so until we see Jesus as he is pictured here. As a warning to God's people in Jeremiah 2.19, it says this. He, God's, God um, brings judgment on his people. And he says, the fear of me is not in you. The fear of me is not in you. Do we truly have that reverent and awe-inspired fear of God today as his people? You know, as I look at the church predominantly in the West, I see a church very much that wants the Jesus as the kitten to, to be the ones who actually have the control over him. It's becoming more and more rare to see people, Christians, people who call themselves followers of Jesus to actually really bow their knee to Jesus and say, Lord, you are, you are Lord over every aspect of my life. Today, as Christians, we want to live our lives as we please. We want to do what we want to do. We want the comfort. We want the security. We want, you know, all the, all the happiness and that sort of stuff. And we want Jesus to give the, 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 his, little, his little gold tick to how we go about living our lives. You know, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there should be a sign that goes, that gets plastered across our lives in neon lights that says, under new management. Under new management. 
sadly for many of us today, that's not the case. We call ourselves Christians, but we will not bow our knees at the feet of Jesus because we continue to see Jesus as that nice little kitten and not the lion. Is there a proper and reverent fear of Jesus in us? Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. He's the king. As we commence a new year in a few days' time, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could endeavour to live in that knowledge that Jesus is indeed the king? He's king of my life. He's king of every aspect of my life. And I will bow to you, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning that we so often honour you with our lips, but we truly don't do it in our hearts and in our lives. This morning is a reminder to us afresh of who you really are the living, risen, exalted, glorified Christ, the one who rules over all. And this morning, as we sit here before you, we want to ask anew that you would come and be Lord of our lives. Lord Jesus, we want to bow before you. We want to submit before you. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, your indwelling Spirit, that you may reveal to us today those areas of our lives that have not yet come under your reign and rule. And we pray that you would make those things very, very clear to us and that we would, having, having had these things shown to us, that we would repent, that we would turn away from that and instead turn towards you and bow afresh before you. Lord, help us truly to be your people, your subjects, your citizens, citizens of your kingdom with you as our king. And Lord, as we do that, may the example that you shine through us be a wonderful testimony to your goodness and your greatness to our surrounding neighbours and world. We ask it for your glory. Amen.